Who's ready for the word today? All right. All right. I'm so excited. Let me say about this word this morning that I'm just like bursting with passion for. Uh, This is one that's like a fresh word. This is so fresh because what I mean by that is I've read these scriptures. I've studied this story, you know, so many times and from so many different perspectives for years. But God just recently opened my eyes to something I'd never seen in this story before. Um, and you know in the scripture that you, you never stop getting revelation, right? You understand that? Like it, every word in the Bible, even like take one word, a Hebrew word, for example, when you look at Hebrew language, uh, every word has like 70 different faces to it that you can kind of go in a direction of. And so when you think about the Bible that way, revelation becomes almost like kaleidoscopic, right? It's just a revelation on top of revelation. It just continues to pour out to us, yet it's the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's unchanging. It's timeless. But it's always fresh in the sense of what it gives us. And so this message today, this word today, is something that God has just recently sort of deposited in me And it has really lit me on fire. It's really done something for me. And I pray that this will do the same for you today. So if you have your Bible, open them up to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. And we're going to begin in verses 1 through 8 today. It'll be up on the screen as well. So let's read. It says, And then six days before the Passover... Jesus came to Bethany, it's a city, where Lazarus, who had been dead, whom he raised from the dead. Let's just stop for a second. I mean, that right there is like a two-hour, we could go down a two-hour. Lazarus, you know, who was dead, uh, but isn't dead anymore, that Jesus raised from the dead. Yeah, that's who, that's where we're at, in Bethany, where that happened. Oh, So verse 3 says, uh, or verse 2, I'm sorry. And then they made him a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. So the dead guy is now sitting at the table with Jesus. (laughs) Martha's serving them. And then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, spikenard, however you want to say that, anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box and used to take what was put in it. But Jesus said, Let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name. Oh, I feel something in here today, God. I feel it. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would just reign in this place, God. Uh, you would just come in like a cloud and you just reign all over this place. I pray that I just, just let me get out of your way, Lord. Just please let me be out of the way so that you can come and do exactly what you want to do. Please, Lord, anoint me. 
uh, to preach and speak what you want me to speak and preach today. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Uh, Chances are that every one of you have heard this story, read this story before. I mean, how many people this is at least a familiar story to? It's the story of the alabaster flask. And in order to unpack this, you kind of have to read the same story in the other Gospels as well. We're going to bounce to a couple of details in the others. It's in Mark chapter 4. It's also in Matthew chapter 26. But in this version of John's, chapter 12 of John, he actually gives details of who the woman is. And the other two, it doesn't. And he calls this woman that is breaking this alabaster flask of precious oil, Mary, whose sister is Martha, and whose brother is Lazarus. And of course we know, as we just looked at the initial details, that Lazarus is the man that Jesus came and raised from the dead. Lazarus, I don't know if you know this, but he had been dead four days. He was in the tomb four days before Jesus raised him from the dead. And they live in this town called Bethany. Now, Bethany is like two miles east of Jerusalem. And what's happening here is Jesus is making his way in. This is six days before the famous, the, five, the major Passover, which is where Easter Sunday is occurring, which is a week from today that we celebrate. And so this event is really taking place right around this time that we're actually in right here, a week before Easter. And Jesus is coming and he's in Bethany, just outside Jerusalem, and it's not long before he makes his triumphal entry into the city where they celebrate Passover, and then eventually we know he goes to the cross. So this is, this is the scene, this is kind of the backdrop. Let me just tell you up front that the verses that grabbed me recently in this story that God began to use to minister to me in a fresh way are the verses right here at the end, and we'll put this back up again, John chapter 12, verse 8, where Jesus says, The poor you have with you always, but me you do not. The poor you have with you always. And all of a sudden, this thing began to come alive in me. God just started wrecking me with this, because I'm like, what is that all about? Like, he's not belittling the needs of the poor i mean we know that like jesus isn't disregarding the need to take care of those who are poor who are less fortunate i mean jesus has just preached for the last three years about the need to take care of the poor and to serve them and to dedicate our lives to preferring others instead of ourselves so we we know that jesus isn't like making light of what we need to do to serve our fellow man. So what is it that he's doing? What is he trying to get across in this message where he's saying, the poor you have with you always? So let's look at, first of all, the act itself that Mary is performing. She's breaking this alabaster flask of very precious oil And then she's pouring it. In this particular version, we see that she poured it on the feet of Jesus. And with absolute amazing humility and grace, she wipes Jesus' feet and the oil with her own hair. 
she anoints his feet with this oil and she wipes it with her own hair. In the version of Mark and of Matthew, it says that she broke the flask and then she poured the oil over the head of Jesus. Now, oil, when you anointed people with oil, it was one of two things. Oh my gosh, get this first of all. One of the two things that they used oil to do was anoint kings. Anoint kings. They actually poured the precious oil over the head of the king to anoint that king to serve and reign as king. Now, I got to tell you, I don't actually think that Mary fully understood what she was even doing. Let me say the second reason that they anointed with oil, and I'll tell you why I don't think she even fully understood this. Because the second reason that they would anoint with this costly oil was to prepare bodies for burial. Because the smell and the stench, this was a, a very precious perfume that had a beautiful fragrance and aroma. And so they would use this to just kind of anoint bodies before they would put them in the tomb for burial. And so Mary, unbeknownst to her, is actually performing one of the most significant prophetic acts in all of Scripture. She is prophesying in her action, not her words. It just doesn't tell you that the word of the Lord will come to be no matter what. His plans will not be frustrated. Is that the Lord, she, she's anointing the king and she's preparing his body for the burial, which is about ready to happen, that she can't possibly even grasp. Wow, that's what's going on here. Now, this oil is an oil uh, called spikenard. Which when you study that in the Greek, it actually is two words. It means pure nard. Now, nard, if you watch the famous movie back in the 80s, Goonies, that meant an entirely different thing. <laughs> Nards. <laughs> then it means here. Nard, and then it's pure nard. We'll address the pure part in a minute. Nard is from a root that is a plant that is famous for growing uh, in the land of India. It's not native to where they are. So it's very expensive. It's very costly. Because they would have to extract the, the nard <laughs> from the oil of the plant. And then they would have to transport it all the way across this desert region. Long ways to get it to Israel. So the, the jar that she had, they say is likely about a pint-sized jar. So it's this very precious oil, very costly. In fact, it even tells us how much it's worth. Because Judas says, this could have been sold for what? Were you paying attention? 300 denarii, right? 300 denarii, get this guys, is a year's worth of wages. A year worth of wages. Average U.S. income today, somewhere, depending on what part of the country you're in, is somewhere between fifty and 60000 for an average income for an individual. So just put that number in your head for a minute. $60,000 is what is in this jar, a pint-sized jar. 
And when they would use it to anoint kings or they would prepare for burial, they used some of it. I mean, they used some of what was in the jar. But Mary, she does something crazy, radical, extravagant. She breaks the jar, the alabaster flask. Alabaster is actually a pretty precious uh, stone-like material itself that comes from Egypt, and it's the way that they would preserve these oils. It was the best way to keep them preserved and not have them dry out or evaporate through. She, she just takes this alabaster flask, $60,000, today's monetary value, and she just breaks the flask why? Why? And, and just pours this over the head and the feet of Jesus. And then she just begins to wipe his feet with her hair and anoint him. I mean, she could have just taken her time, but I think she broke this because she was just so zealous. I mean, she was just so excited and just couldn't wait to just spend this entire jar of precious oil to perform one precious act of anointing the head and the feet of Jesus. Are you with me? Are you getting the picture of this? Good. And so we see this amazing act, but all of a sudden we see this response from the people who are around and who are with Jesus. Now, we just read in John about the response of Judas. What does Judas say? He says, I, well, I can't believe that she would do that. Why would she do that? That could have been sold for a year's worth of wages, and that money could have been given to the poor. And it even says he didn't care about the poor. I mean, we know the heart of Judas, right? He was the guy that, of the 12 disciples that handled the money box that the offerings went into, that took care of the needs of the disciples as they traveled. It says he was robbing it. He was stealing from the money box all along. I mean, the heart of Judas was not for the poor, but he kind of like masks it this way. And in fact, when it says Judas was a thief, that word is actually the word kleptos, which is where we get the word in the English kleptomaniac, right? I mean, think about that. That, that's, that was the heart of Judas here. Yet he's like, hey, she's going to have been sold for the 300 denarii. Could it be given to the poor? Why would she do that? You know, trying to like attack Mary's act of worship. Hmm. Isn't it just like the religious legalistic type to see an act of worship, an act of praising God, something they don't understand, a method they don't agree with, and then condemn it? Hmm, that ain't right. What's, and, and what's going on in Mary's heart? I'm going to talk to you about that in a second, but what's happening in Mary's heart is just a pure, genuine act of worship. Yet Judas is over here condemning this, saying, why would she do that? That's, that's wrong of her. Well, it wasn't just Judas. Okay, if you read in Mark and in Matthew, it says that the others who were there, it says that the disciples themselves became indignant, angry, furious, the disciples, at what Mary was just doing as well. And it said the same thing. This could have been sold. This could have been given to the poor. What were you doing with this? 
Now, it seems to me, it doesn't say specifically, but this was likely Mary's oil, right? I mean, it was likely hers, because if she would have taken somebody else's oil and did this, they'd probably be like, whoa, that wasn't even hers to do. I can't believe she would have did that. You know, maybe she would have crossed the line there. I don't know. But most likely, this was her own oil that she had that she was saving or preserving for some special occasion or special needs. Yet the disciples are like, indignant, angry, furious. Why would she possibly do this? You know, I have found that when it comes to praising God, putting God first in our lives, prioritizing Him there, really going extravagant, with our worship, with our dedication, and with our commitment, a lot of times it's going to be misunderstood. I mean, it isn't supposed to necessarily be like this nice, neat, packaged, rational thing about how we put Jesus first in our lives. In fact, it ought to be kind of crazy and radical to the point that people might have to actually scratch their heads when they see how important Jesus is to you in your life. That, that, might, not, that might actually need to be the reaction. I mean, these disciples, they just spent several years with Jesus. They served him very well. They heard his teachings. I mean, they're not naive to the things of God at this point. Yet, all of a sudden... They're looking on, Judas is looking on, and here we have Mary displaying this amazing, genuine act of worship, and none of these guys get it. None of them understand it. And they've served him well, yet they're looking on, and they're just like, she's just crazy. I can't believe this. What a waste. What a waste. But what if, what if Mary was actually the one who really got it of all. What if Mary really is the one that saw something, that feels something, that recognizes something, and what if everybody else are the ones that are actually in need of a heart adjustment? They're actually in need of an attitude adjustment and need to really be dealt with in this moment. And guess what? That's exactly what Jesus is fixing to do because he puts them in their place in fact he says something at the end of these verses in the in the mark version he says i'm going to tell you something this woman right here what you just saw her do as any place in the world where this gospel is preached the story will be told of this woman it'll be a memorial or an honor to her did you know jesus never said that anywhere else in the entire bible about anyone Wow, why, why would he do that? Why would he say to these guys, hey, the poor you have with you always, but me you don't. But I'm going to tell you something. This act that this woman just performed, anywhere in the world the gospel gets preached for now until the rest of the ages. When people hear the gospel, they're going to hear about this lady. They're going to hear the story. Because I think that means that when you hear the real gospel message preached, you can't separate it from the fact that one who is following Christ needs to be someone who has a pure and genuine heart that's an act of worship, that they will be willing to do anything and at all costs to worship the King of Kings and to put him first in their life. And he said, this is, this is actually, you, you, don't only, you don't just have this wrong, guys. 
Like, this is going to be an example for the rest of the age now, what this woman just did. And these guys, they're struggling. They don't understand it. I mean, this was probably the most expensive thing that was in the house of Mary, and yet she didn't even seem to think twice. She just comes and breaks this thing and begins to pour it all over Jesus. She sees something. Now let me just remind you that Mary is the sister of Lazarus. <laughs> it's hard to be very specific about chronological order in certain things in the Bible, but it appears to be most likely that the raising of Lazarus from the dead has already occurred because this setup at Bethany is getting ready to be right before the triumphal entry. So Lazarus was dead four days in the tomb. Jesus comes along. And Mary, it's her brother. I mean, she loves Lazarus. She's, her heart is ripped apart at his passing from this illness. He was a young man. It says Lazarus was probably about 30 years old whenever he died. And he's in the tomb four days, and it, Jesus was like in no hurry to get there. And when he shows up, they're like, it's too late if you would have been here. But, you know, nevertheless, anything you'd say, Lord, you can do. And he comes along, and he says, move the stone. And then Mary says, Lord, it, the stench, it's been four days. He says, move the stone. I love this part about Jesus. This is just a side point, but it's like, you know, he, he kind of just says, look, he, he loves to invite us in to partner with him in these amazing, miraculous things that he does. Why, I don't know. I, I don't feel worthy of that, but he just wants it to be so, and I love that about him, and I treasure that. But he just says, he says, look, you move the stone, I'll raise the dead. <laughs> just move the stone. Forget about the stench, just move the stone. He moves the stone, and he says, Lazarus, come forth. <laughs> And he gets up and he walks out of this tomb after four days of being dead. Now he's not dead. And here he is. He's alive. And he walks out and he smells good too. <laughs> he ain't stinking. <laughs> and this is the Lazarus that's at the table where Mary is and Jesus is where Mary's pouring all this oil over her feet. I mean... Now all of a sudden, is, does this seem so radical to you? I mean, if Jesus just came along and raised your loved one from the dead who'd been dead four days and they walked out and they're sitting with you now and that same Jesus is the one who is in your company, does it seem really crazy that you would break a jar of oil that's worth one year wage and just pour it all over him as an act of worship because he deserves it? I don't think so. I don't think so. But it's these words toward the end that just grabbed me here in this most recent series of days. It's this verse where Jesus says, the poor you have with you always. And I have began to ponder and I began to meditate and pray on that. What's that all about, Lord? You love the poor. And I, I started to see what the whole purpose behind this statement that Jesus was trying to make was. You see, when you look at the way that the prophets of old 
performed their work of ministry, the way they carried out their work of ministry. And if you look at the way Jesus himself even demonstrated how he performed his ministry, it looked a little like this. The prophet would go into the desert. He would go into the wilderness and he would get away from the world. No distractions, no noises, no cell phones, no social media. You know, he just he updated his account before he left and then he headed out. Right? He set one of those auto replies for his texts and everything. And then he shut that phone down and he went right out into the desert. And he spent days in the desert doing what? What was he doing? Just being with God, praying, worshiping, being with the Lord, perhaps because he needed something there that he had to have when he came back to actually do ministry, that if he didn't have it, he would have been performing or operating from a depleted state. It's all of a sudden just began to explode in me. I began to see that Jesus himself was the example. The prophets were the example. There was always this beautiful, wonderful oscillation, if you will, between desert and ministry, between worship and work, between being with God and doing for God. It was this beautiful oscillation. It was like this cadence and this rhythm that they understood, I can't be here if I haven't been here. Whoa. He says, the poor you have with you always. There's never a time, I don't know if you figured this out, but the needs, the demands, the evil, the hurts, they never stop out there. I mean, there's never like, oh, whew, praise God we caught a break. Let's enjoy it while it lasts. There is nothing wrong going on. Nobody needs anything today. Whoo, let's enjoy this. No. He says, never stops. You'll always have the opportunity to do that. But you know, the way that God created you, he didn't create you where you can do that 24-7 and only do that and never have what you actually need to do this well, which is this. You need the desert. You need the time. You need the worship. You need to be with him. I'm not a musician, but I know in music they have what's so uh, important. They, they, they have notes that create the music, but, and help me out with the technical term, but it's the space. Rest. What is it? Rest. Rests? Yeah, arrests. Thank you. There's a space <laughs> in between the notes, and it's different spaces. Give it a rest. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> and it's the spaces, the rest in between the notes that make the music. Yeah. If you just had all these notes littered together on top of each other and no breaks, no rest, you, you would not hear the beauty of the music. It's the rests in between. It's the space in between the notes. It's the deserts in between the work of the ministry and the service to God that he's calling you to that will make this beautiful, that will make this effective and make it powerful. Yeah, Folks, I, I think 
In our day and age, one of the greatest dangers to the kingdom building work that God needs to do in this present era on the face of the earth is that the people of God in the church would be trying to do it on depleted cups. That they would try to be pouring out and pouring out when they weren't full themselves to begin with. And it is impossible to give out something that you don't have. The need for the worship, for the time with God, that genuine place that Mary, I think, actually seemed to understand. This pure worship. She had an opportunity and she seized the moment. It was a pure, precious oil. When we say pure nard, pure means unadulterated. It had not been diluted. There was nothing added to it. It was 100% pure oil. And I would submit this to you, that her act of worship before the Lord to break this flask of precious oil and expend a year's worth of wages to just anoint the king and worship him because he deserved it was one of the purest acts of worship that we can see when we read our entire Bible. Pure in the sense that her heart was entirely set on Jesus. She wasn't seeking some selfish motive. She wasn't trying to, get, trying to get something for herself. She was entirely doing this as a pure, unadulterated act of worship. And Jesus saw that heart because only God can peer into the heart of a man. And Jesus saw that heart, and that's what led him to make a statement so profound as to say anywhere in the world that this gospel is ever preached, this woman's going to be known. Because this was a pure act of worship. And this type of rhythm of balance between desert between worship and getting filled and being full of God so that when we go to do the things he's calling us to do in our lives that they can truly be an overflow of power coming from the fullness of what we've just been filled up with and I found more and more at this point in my life and recognized that it is it is a disservice to my fellow man, and it is a disservice to God if I am attempting to go and minister out of a depleted cup. And what I love about the, the Mary in this story is that she actually was willing to pay an extravagant cost to do this. You know, Jesus said about following him he said, you know, you really need to count the cost before you sign up for this. Uh, he said, a wise king, in a parable, he said, a wise king, before he goes out to war, he knows how to count the costs of that war before he actually begins the battle. He knows what it's going to cost him before he goes into it. And I would say that when we say we are going to serve God and that we need to live a life of worship, in order to put God first, to really worship Him, to create the spaces in between the notes in our lives, the, one, the, the amount of spaces and frequencies that we really need, it's, it's going to cost you something. It's going to cost you laying down the other things 
the other responsibilities, the other hobbies, whatever it is that you're so tempted to fill in between the spaces of the notes that really need to be reserved for one thing. You know, I, I, I think for most people, the idea of $60,000 for one act of worship seems ridiculous. It seems just unwise and silly. Why would, we, why would somebody do that? But yet Jesus seems to pull this little thing out of the Bible in a way where he puts an exclamation point on it and says, everybody needs to pay attention to this one. I mean, you need to pay attention to that, but you need to really pay attention to this one because it was anything but ridiculous. It was pure. It was genuine. It was extravagant, and it was pleasing to me. And we say many times that, well, it's going to cost me something, you know, uh, worshiping God and devoting myself to Him. And I I think sometimes we just kind of like, we are willing to pay a small price. Yeah, I'll, I'll, this is no big deal. I can, I can give up a few minutes. I, I can give up a little bit of time. I can give up a little bit of money. I can give a little bit of something and no big deal. I'll never feel that cost. That will never affect me. And so I'll give that to the Lord. But then all of a sudden, the Lord says, well, I kind of I, I want that. I, I, I kind of want that place in your life, actually. And we say, oh, but God, that's, that's a serious cost. And then he says, that's the point. That's the point. Might I suggest to you, it's a good thing that God is God and we're not. That in his wisdom that he understands that it is better for us It is more necessary for us that we live a life of great sacrifice of cost to ourselves and to our flesh and to our own desires so that it might produce a life of great fruitfulness for him. He sees that and he's calling us to that. I don't know what your bubble bath looks like. I don't know what this is to you, but I do believe that if your heart is open today, perhaps God's already telling you that. Perhaps the Holy Spirit is already speaking that to you. Perhaps he's already showing you maybe the cheapness, the the little cost involved in some of the things that we've been willing to do for him, but what he's actually calling from our heart what he really wants from us and I remember about a year ago I was up here at church and I was working and trying to get a lot of things done and trying to you know knock out a to-do list tons of important things right important matters they were and I just all of a sudden I felt like God said come come out in the sanctuary put on some worship music And can you just come and just be with me for a minute? And it was like, I'm ashamed to admit this, but it was like this tug at my heart that I was like, but God, I can't do that right now. And I'm so, oh, it just bothers me that that was my initial reaction. And I was like, oh, all right, okay. Uh, I'm going to go do this for like five minutes. 
just telling you what I did. I come out here and I turned on the worship music and I started, you know, hearing a song and, and I'm walking around. I'm like, okay, five minutes, song is over. And I started to walk out like I had just done some great thing, you know. And the Lord spoke to me. He's like, where are you going? You, you, ha- you haven't even showed up yet. I was like, oh, okay, all right, well, repeat. <laughs> Replay that song again, you know. So I did this, and for the first 15, 20 minutes, I mean, it was like this wrestle in me. I got to get to where I got to go. I got to do what I got to do. It's what's not going to get done. Those tasks, they're calling me. God, so I'm calling you. Which voice is louder? Okay. About 30 minutes in, all of a sudden, something just broke open in my heart. And all of a sudden... Worship began to flow. I mean, I actually was running around in this place. I was like dancing. I was screaming and yelling and worshiping God and praising him and giving him everything I had. And I'm telling you, all of a sudden, I looked down and four hours had went by. I mean, I struggled the first five minutes. The last three and a half hours was like a flash. Here's the crazy thing. I don't even remember what it was that I needed to do. I I couldn't tell you if I had to to save my life what was on my to-do list that day and what those tasks were. No clue. But I will never forget the lesson that God taught me in those four hours and in that moment here in this place that day. I will never forget it. And the amazing thing is, is that I went out of here And I felt like all of a sudden I had something in me that I didn't have before and I didn't even recognize that I desperately needed it before I took one more step doing one more thing. I was dry. I was depleted. I was wore out and empty and didn't even know it. And I was just going to keep on doing and doing and doing. And God said, get out here and be with me. And let me fill you with something that you need so bad you can't even see. And I love you so much that I know what you need better than you know what you need. And I'm going to do everything I can to get you out here and make you pay a price. It's going to cost you the rest of your day to come be here and actually get what you need to get. And I'm so glad that I paid that price. But I'm so glad that I'm more apt and more prone to be willing to pay that price every day since that day forward. And I love it. Hallelujah. Praise God. Is this helping anybody today? Let me close with this thought. Jesus says, the poor you have with you always, but but me, you don't. And for the longest time, James, up until this recent number of days, I always looked at that as it was because the incarnation, Jesus, God in the flesh, was only here for a few more days. The, the personified person of God in, in Christ was there with them in their proximity. I always looked at it like, well, that's just what he's saying because Jesus is going to be gone. Of course, they shouldn't be worried about anything except Jesus right now. And, and all of a sudden, it, it dawned on me that the price 
that Jesus was asking them to pay, the cost that he was exhorting and, and just putting an example around Mary's life that she was willing to do to be with him, would, would he expect anything less from me today for the time and the worship that I need to give to the person of the Holy Spirit who is with me always, who's there every day? That's what I thought. I thought, well, Jesus is just there and he's going to be gone, but I got the Holy Spirit. I got him with me all the time. Whoa, be careful. Be so careful to develop or adapt that type of thinking because it begins to cheapen and it begins to lessen the value and the beauty and the extravagance of the cost that we need to be willing to pay to get that time and to be with him and to allow him to fill our cup so that we can serve, that we can live, that we can work from a place of being full. Hallelujah. I thought to myself, no, I don't think God would expect anything less from me today of the cost or price that I would be willing to pay to put him first in my life and really worship him than he was back here when Jesus was with Mary that day. And he used this example to put an exclamation point on what kind of heart he was looking for. Let me remind you, Jesus said, the Father is looking for those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Pure, unadulterated, genuine, a desire and a need to be with him. And when we really start to understand and really realize what ministering and serving God from a full cup looks like, we'll be quick to get back to the desert as soon as we can sense that we're starting to run dry. Perfect isolation. Not to suggest to you you will ever achieve that perfect balance, but knowing that there is this example that Jesus sets between desert and ministry that he is screaming and yelling at us today to get. Folks, brothers, sisters, church, fellow soldiers, if we are going to build God's kingdom, and advance his kingdom in this present age, we are going to have to recognize that one of the greatest techniques the devil is using against God's people is busyness, distraction, and wearing them down to the point they never know a time in the desert in their life. Let me get them so busy that they're always focused on the needs of the poor, doing, 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 that they'll get so dry, they'll get so wore out, that eventually they're going to be resentful, they're going to be ineffective, they're going to start doing it for all the wrong reasons, they're going to get on autopilot, and there won't be any type of refreshing and relationship and power filling them and coming into them to go out into these things. If they want to do it, okay, I can't, if I can't stop them from doing it, then maybe I can just affect how they do it how they do it and if i can render them ineffective because they're so busy and they don't they're not willing to pay the price to pay the cost to actually get what they need from god then i think i can accomplish a great work that's what the devil is trying to do in today's age building the church and building the kingdom we must know that we've got to maintain that balance between desert and ministry amen